Hello, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associate Health and Wellness Newsletter AudioCast. I am your host, Dr. M, and this is issue number 25 for the week of June 6, 2022. This week, we're going to look at coronavirus update number 63. We're also going to take a look at monkeypox. So, the free thoughts love is giving without expectation of return. So sit with that one for a little bit. True love is where you give and you're really not worried about what comes back. And I found in my life when I give, I don't even think about what comes back, but invariably things come back all the time. There's something about that energy of sharing that usually is reciprocal. Song of the week. If you haven't given the song of the week a chance, I love this one. Angel Flight by Darden Smith. Beautiful story of uh, airline pilot flying back men who've died overseas. And over this Memorial Day period last week, this was a beautiful song. So let's look at coronavirus update number 63. This week, we're going to talk a bit about boosters and why COVID just keeps on dragging on, the gifts that keeps on giving. North Carolina is moving along like the pre-pandemic days now. People are maskless, doing whatever they want. Not much fear, not much worry. I'm actually pretty happy with that. Our clinic, Salisbury Pediatrics, is COVID testing between 0 and 2% positive rate week by week still. Influenza A was pretty prominent in our practice for about a month there, but is fading. North Carolina hospitals are down to 4% of admitted patients needing a ventilator and 11% needing an ICU bed for COVID. The seven-day moving average for cases in the U.S. was recently rising and was up to about 111,000. And the risk of death remains the same, 0.000033, once vaccinated with a two-dose series or survived natural infection. Great news. That's why we're back to the pre-pandemic days. As it stands today, the United States has 84.5 million known cases. It's probably way more than that in the 100 to 200 to 300 million. About a million 500 deaths. Big number. The case numbers will continue to underestimate the true volume by one, two, three, four, five X. Who knows? All right. The questions that were asked the previous newsletter, knowing the latest data, are you going to get a booster? 80% said, nope. Knowing the latest data, are you boosting your children? 82% said, no. The Omicron U.S. strains currently are the newer variant BA.2 makes up about 35% of current case volume based on different parts of the country, while Omicron BA.1.1.529 is at 6% and BA.2.12.1 is at 59%. Deltas, bye-bye. Cases are increasing in some cities with little increase in hospital morbidity and mortality. In essence, we are still faring quite well in the new norm. At the time of this audio cast, there still was no major influx of BA.4 and 0.5 in the U.S. There are not infectiousness in the range of measles, which is crazy. One person will infect 12. Those 12 will infect 144. Those 144 will infect 1728. And those 1728 will infect 20,736. That is an exponential fast spread rate. All right, let's hit the quick hits. Number one. Dr. Alstein's and colleagues at the Catholic University of Louvain in Belgium have found a key piece in SARS-2 viral entry mechanism. 
they have identified a sialic acid residue, a sugar, that is on the human cell surface that acts as a gatekeeper for viral entry. The group noted that the spike protein of the SARS-2 virus binds to this site very well. The same group tried and succeededly succeeded in blocking the S protein's ability to bind to the SA site. This is now going to be a major research endeavor for developing a therapeutic treatment to slow down viral attachment and ultimately disease. This comes to us from Petitjean, P-E-T-I-T-J-E-A-N et al. 2022. The caveat will be early use of this therapy will be critical for a positive outcome as viral replication speed before immune activation are keys to poor outcomes. Number two, from cell. Fecal SARS-CoV-2 RNA is detected in 49.2% of participants within the first week after diagnosis, whereas there was no ongoing oropharyngeal SARS-CoV-2 RNA shedding in subjects at four months. 12.7% of participants continued to shed SARS-CoV-2 RNA in the feces at four months after diagnosis, and 3.8% shed at seven months. Finally, we found that GI symptoms, abdominal pain, nausea, and vomiting, are associated with viral shedding of SARS-CoV-2 RNA. Natarajan et al. 2022, spelled N-A-T-A-R-A-J-A-N. So this study is similar to Dr. Yonker's study in Journal of Clinical Investigation from a year and a half ago. Some people have a secondary SARS-2 harboring site in the GI tract that can lead to problems over time. In children, multi-inflammatory system or persistent GI symptoms or long COVID symptoms in adults are the corollaries. Intestinal dysbiosis, dysfunctional microbiome bacteria from many lifestyle-driven factors, is a precursor risk factor that drives worsening outcomes in these cases. Number three, GI SARS-2 viral remnants are found in now three studies. Ledford, H, 2022. This is a major leap forward in understanding the possibility that viral fragments that persist in human tissue can cause the immune system to stay in a state of hypervigilance. This persistence of vigilance can lead to exhausted immune and other cell types. Viral remnants are being found in the eyes, brain, heart, muscle, and many other locales, raising the important question of why are they there? Also at play are the mitochondria. Remember from a few weeks ago, as Dr. San, Milun, San Milan's group write in scientific terms, there is urgent need to understand the pathogenesis of post-acute SARS-CoV-2 and find the effective treatments. The cardiopulmonary exercise test, otherwise known as CPET, is commonly used to investigate unexplained exertional dyspnea in exercise. As such, it could provide insight into mechanisms of long COVID. CPET data can be used to calculate rates of beta oxidation of fatty acids and of lactate clearance, providing insight into mitochondrial function. Fit individuals have better mitochondrial function and a higher rate of fat ox during exercise than less fit individuals. Our results suggest that patients with long COVID have significant impairment in the ability to break down fats by a fat oxidation and increase blood lactate levels accumulating during exercise, regardless of previous comorbidities. This comes to us from Deborah et al. 2022. So what these authors are saying in principle is that SARS-2, COVID, is infecting or at least present chronically in the gut of many individuals and in other cells leading to a shift in the function of the immune system locally in the mitochondrial energy centers of these cells. In this case, specifically the muscle cell. These cells unfortunately preferentially produce lactate through glycolysis instead of using fat as the major source of fuel. This is like being in zone 5 of exercise for weeks on end. 
that would be exhausting. That will put you into a fatigue state. Over time and through research, we are learning that the mitochondria is becoming the center of many disease states as they provide the energy for locomotion, thought, digestion, and so much more. Number four, PACS or long COVID demographics are now being further narrowed from a large study called the Fair Health White Paper. The highlights, 76% of patients diagnosed with COVID post-COVID condition had not been hospitalized for COVID-19. It's a big number. So lots of mild disease driving long COVID. Among patients who presented with post-COVID diagnosis, 82% of the females had not had COVID hospitalization compared to 68% of the men. The age group 36 to 50 was the most likely to be diagnosed with post-COVID condition. 35% of patients with that diagnosis were in the age group. Females were more likely than males to be diagnosed with post-COVID conditions. Females made up 60% of the population of patients with this diagnosis, while males made up 40%. Of patients who presented with post-COVID condition, 30.7% had no identified pre-existing comorbid conditions. The three diagnoses most commonly co-occurring on the same claim line as post-COVID in all age groups and genders were abnormalities of breathing at 23%, cough 19%, malaise and fatigue at 17%. In patients with long COVID, certain co-occurring diagnoses were more common in some groups than across all age groups. For example, multi-inflammatory syndrome was common in the zero to 12 year old group Abnormalities of heartbeat was in the 13 to 22-year-old group. Generalized anxiety, 23 to 35-year-old. And hypertensive disease, over 65. Quote, other and unspecific, unspecified myopathies, end quote, disease that affect muscles and motor function, occurred in patients with post-COVID uh, diagnosis 11 times more frequently than the same population prior to COVID. Pulmonary embolism occurred three times more often and other brain disorders like post-viral fatigue syndrome and certain encephalopathies occurred two times more often. On average, in all age groups, patients with post-COVID condition at higher Department of Health and Human Services risk scores after the diagnosis was made than before, which means it would likely consume more healthcare resources and potentially incur more healthcare-related costs in the long run over time. Number five. What does the future hold with the continued exposure to humans and SARS-2 now that most of us have had exposure and or been vaccinated multiple times? Catherine Wu writes writes in The Atlantic, a solid piece loaded with thoughts that run the gamut of possibility. I land in the camp that the SARS-2 virus will become a nuisance for most, a major headache for the select few and rare death for the unhealthy. This reality will play out over time as we watch the reinfections play out in real time. If it goes according to my prediction, we will see reinfections every two to three years per person based on T-cell and B-cell immunity weakening coupled to SARS-2 mutations. The infections will likely be less severe each time based on T-cell epitope spreading as opposed to the first time we all were immunologically naive and saw this little 120 nanometer troublemaker. Some folks predict infections two to three times a year. I'm a little dubious of this reality at this point after viewing more data, but we shall see. Number six. Third dose of mRNA vaccine induces a hybrid-like immunity that has increased immunity against multiple variants. 
Andriano et al. 2022. This is good to know for those who are getting a third dose and haven't been naturally infected. The natural route is definitely providing vastly better variant immunity and length of protection has been shown in repeated studies. Seven, group found that SARS-2 COVID disease can include persistent cardiorenal inflammation, hemostatic pathway activation, and lung involvement. They analyzed patients for months after COVID infection found multi-system inflammation and persistent disease issues. This reality explains the symptoms of inflammation, fatigue, and sense of disease in many people. Number eight, from a study in PLOS One, most SARS-CoV-2 infections were not persistently asymptomatic. And asymptomatic infections were less infectious than symptomatic infections. Buitrago Garcia et al., B-U-I-T-R-A-G-O hyphen Garcia, G-A-R-C-I-A et al. Number nine, among persons who had been previously infected with SARS-CoV-2, regardless of whether they had received any dose or vaccine, or whether they had received one dose before or after infection, protection against reinfection decreased as a time increase since the last immunity-conferring event. However, this protection was higher than that conferred after the same time had elapsed since receipt of a second dose of vaccine among previously uninfected persons. A single dose of vaccine after infection reinforced protection against reinfection. Goldberg et al., 2022. This is a marginal benefit, but still a benefit. The preponderance of the data to date shows that boosting adds one to five months of protection against SARS-2 infection. Many gain only two months of protection against symptomatic disease. In another study, Jung and colleagues noted that transmission was cut in half for fully vaccinated versus unvaccinated or partially vaccinated individuals. Jung et al. 2022. This is my opinion. I am not sure why many colleges and universities are mandating SARS-2 boosters when there is not a national mandate nor a long-term benefit. The logic is hard for me to follow other than any less disease is desirable for a college campus. If we treat SARS-2 like the influenza illness moving forward, we will vaccinate every fall and gain a few months of protection for some of the vaccinees. Then what? Boost again in January? Do we have any data on biannual boosting with mRNA vaccines over the next 20 years in these young men? and women. How do we treat the natural infections? Vaccinate anyway afterward? This is going to be an absolute mess. The reason for pushing hard against the SARS-2 virus initially was to slow death and hospitalization. That is now decoupled from infection as most, if not all, of the United States population has now been exposed to the virus and have T-cell immunity moving forward. Number 10, from Nature Immunology. Although mRNA vaccine efficacy against severe coronavirus disease 2019 remains high, variant emergence has prompted booster immunizations. However, the effect of repeated exposures to severe acute respiratory syndrome COVID-2 antigens on memory T cells are poorly understood. Here we utilize major histocompatibility complex multimers with single cell RNA sequencing to profile SARS-CoV-2 response T-cells, ex vivo, from humans with one, two, or three antigen exposures, including vaccination, primary infection, and breakthrough infection. Exposure order determined the distribution between spike-specific and non-spike-specific responses, with vaccination after infection leading to expansion of specific spike T-cells and differentiation of CCR7 effectors. In contrast, individuals are after breakthrough infection, mount vigorous non-spike-specific responses. 
the analysis of over 4,000 epitope-specific T-cell antigen receptor sequences demonstrates that all exposures elicit diverse repertoires characterized by shared T-cell receptor motifs. Confirmed by monoclonal T-cell receptor characterization with no evidence for repertoire narrowing from repeated exposure. Our findings suggest that breakthrough infections diversify the T-cell memory repertoire and current vaccination protocols continue to expand and differentiate spike-specific memory. Minervina et al. Okay, that was a lot again, some immunology there, but let's break it down. This is a very important study. It says that both infection via natural route and vaccination provide different yet beneficial immune responses. The boosters will increase the spike-specific memory and expand the epitope pattern, which is useful for variant identification. However, I think that mild natural infection appears to still be the best way to get high-quality robust immunity for those that are not at risk for a bad outcome and have already seen the virus before. Epitope spread is great from natural virus for many of the different protein structures of the virus. This path will likely lead to longer-lasting immunity per cycle and less illness overall. This is my hypothesis based on all the data that I've read to date. All right, that's all for coronavirus this week. As always, you can get all the links in Salisbury Pediatric Associates' website at the Health and Wellness tab. Section 2, monkeypox. What do we know? Monkeypox is an orthopox virus that has a double-stranded DNA makeup that has been infecting humans since 1970, the year that I was born. It is part of the family of viruses, including smallpox and cowpox. Remember that smallpox is a nasty and highly lethal virus to humans that has been vaccinated out of existence with the exception of frozen stored viral material at U.S. Amrit in Russia, from what I understand. The monkeypox virus is usually carried by rodents, including mice, rats, raccoons, and squirrels. Humans get infected when bitten or exposed to the virus through the animal's body fluids. Most of U.S. cases have occurred when people travel to Central or West Africa or become exposed to imported animals from there. Human-to-human transmission is very rare. The virus causes a mild illness with pox-type lesions on the skin. Symptoms take one to two weeks to show up after infection. Fever, headache, and mild flu-like symptoms have occurred. Shortness of breath can occur in some people. A few days later, a rash can appear on the extremities, head, and or chest that looks like classic pox. They eventually turn into blisters scabbing over in two to three weeks. The virus infects many organs in severe cases, leading to problems with organ function, including vision issues, encephalitis, pneumonia. Also, the lesions can get infected, leading to bacterial infections of varying severity. Death is exceedingly rare, and treatment is supportive care only. There are no medicines currently available to treat this virus. At-risk groups include elderly, elderly, immunocompromised, those with rare immune SNPs related to viral surveillance and killing, and those who spend a lot of close contact with each other when sick. Okay, that's it for coronavirus update number 63 with some extra issues there related to monkeypox. I hope everyone enjoyed this episode and as always, remember to hug those kids and until next time, have a great day. The disclaimer, the information provided in this audio cast newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and or treatment provided by your physician or healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This newsletter does not constitute development of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.